wealth of shorter, more lyrical poems, Alcott has swept his intelligence over everything from exile and uprootedness through the cultural heritage of Europe to his Caribbean homeland, its hard history, its old ties to Africa, its physical beauty and tensions. Now just turned 80, he's still writing, and his new collection, White Egrets, covers as wide a territory as ever, with edgy, angry political verses mixed with more personal reflections on ageing. Many of the poems convey a vivid sense of Derek Walcott sitting there, writing, glancing up every so often to watch the egrets and other birds outside. And when he spoke with me from his home in St Lucia, he began by describing where he does write. If I'm at home, generally I write from where I am right now, which is outside on a veranda with a view of the sea and Pigeon Island, generally in the morning. I have a studio and I have a window in the studio that looks out and a nice view, but I tend to be here more often than there. One of the striking things about this collection for me is how much energy the poems have and in several places they also have a real kick of anger. I'm thinking of one poem which opens like this. It says, here's what that bastard calls the emptiness. Yes. Bastard being the novelist Joseph Conrad and by extension I think all Europeans. I assume from the poem that their bastardness is because they see the non-European world as being either somewhere where nothing actually important happens or somewhere that they can just go in and write whatever they want on. Yes, I mean summarizing whole cultures is a privilege that a lot of them take onto themselves and that can be infuriating because I, it, I think it's a little difficult to call all of Africa as empty. You know, it's taken on a lot, I think. But I understand what emptiness means, except emptiness for somebody else may be fullness for the other person. I mean, the richness that is there in the African landscape or the African desert, whatever, is something that maybe an African poet will find very fertilizing and encouraging. Whereas if somebody is judging a culture by its own, by his or her own culture, and it's not quite fair to summarize it as the emptiness. The emptiness condemns all of the Caribbean, I think, since its, you know, its ancestor is Africa. Another of your poems, your poem called The Acacia Trees, mounts a a wonderfully scathing attack on the ever more intense transformation of St Lucia and the Caribbean in general into a kind of tourist resort. And let's hear it now being read. You used to be able to drive, though I don't, across the wide pool-sheeted pasture below the house to the hot, empty beach and park in the starved shade of the acacias that print those tiny yellow flowers. Blank, printless beaches are part of my trade. Then there were men with tapes and theodolites who measured the wild, uneven ground. I watched the doomed acres where yet another luxury hotel will be built with ordinary people fenced out. The new makers of our history profit without guilt and are, in fact, Prophets of a policy that will make the island a mall, and the breakers grin like waiters, like taxi drivers, these new plantations by the sea, a slavery without chains, with no blood spelt, just 
chain-link fences and signs, the new degradations. I felt such freedom writing onto the acacias. Well, that's the acacia trees by Derek Walcott. And Derek Walcott, one thing I've always loved about your poetry is the way it plays with the conventions of form and rhyme and rhythm, so that in that poem, for instance, you've got this rhyme that occurs throughout it, acres, makers, breakers, waiters, acacias, I mean, some of them are half rhymes, but they appear at unexpected places, at irregular places, and that both gives me great pleasure because it makes me smile, but it also has a kind of kick of keeping me on my toes. And I wondered what it is for you that makes you enjoy doing that, having things just slightly unbalanced, subverting the, the traditional forms. Rhyme is always a surprise. I think rhyme is always a surprise, even for the writer, that when you come to a rhyme, even they're supposed to be conventionally at the end of a line or after so many lines, then a rhyme. The point of the rhyme is that it is self-surprising almost, that you say to yourself, if you get it, oh, wow, that's okay, that's good. If you anticipate the rhyme, it probably is a cliché. There's an interesting tension in this collection between the fact that this is a book filled with vibrancy, with language working just very beautifully, and yet there's a shadow through it of old age and the rustle of death creeping closer. And the very last poem has an almost um, valedictory tone to it in the last two lines which go as a cloud slowly covers the page and it goes white again and the book comes to a close. Yes. Is that a big goodbye or just a goodbye for this book? Well, it's a kind of a surrealist trick too, just the next white page is empty, there's no poem, so that's the blankness that follows death, I guess. But I mean, do you, do you feel that you're going to go on writing quite a lot more or are you getting worried that you're not going to be writing so much more? Um, I've done a lot, so I'm not worried about writing, about writing more. Uh, maybe I should spare people another book. You know, there was a time at which I thought, well, I think I've written enough poetry, I'm going to stop. But it's, um, you can't stop, it's impossible. The art demands it that you, however pompous that sounds, that you write something down because actually it's a form of glorification, it's a form of praise. And, I mean, to be in a state of uh, astonishment about what's around you, even in old age, especially in old age, is rewarding. One particular sadness of old age, it seems to me, is the way one loses friends. Yeah, I had good friends. I wonder if you could just, there's a poem which particularly moved me, which is written, um, dedicated to your late friend Oliver Jackman, yeah. the Barbadian diplomat. Right. What, what was it about him that you particularly wanted to commemorate? Well, you can never get the person down accurately, and it's sometimes a little too difficult to try to summarize the characteristics of people who have been good friends. Obviously, the elation, the pleasure of being in their company, their wit, their dedication, and the privilege and honor of having such people as close to you. So I guess it would apply to Oliver. It's what others do, not us. Die, even the closest, on a vain, glorious, glorious morning, as the song goes, 
The yellow or golden palms are glorious, and all the rest, a sparkling splendor, die. They are practicing calypsos. They are putting up and pulling down tents. Vendors are slicing the heads of coconuts around the savannah. Men are leaning on, then leaping into pirogues. A moon will be rising tonight in the same place over Morn Coco. Then the full grief will hit me, and my heart will toss like a horse's head, or a threshing bamboo grove that even you could be part of the increasing loss that is the daily dial of the revolving shade. Love lies underneath it all, though. The more surprising the death, the deeper the love, the tougher the life. The pain is over. Feathers, close your eyelids, Oliver. What a happy friend, and what a fine wife. Your death is like our friendship beginning over. Derek Walcott's poem for Oliver Jackman being read there by Mike Jarvis at the BBC's Caribbean service. It comes from the new collection White Egrets, from which we'll hear a little bit more in a moment. On the next edition of The Strand, British novelist Ian McEwan on his new comedy of climate change, how the city of Alexandria, cultural hub of the ancient world, is trying to regain its reputation, and why Ewan McGregor and Jim Carrey's latest film is upsetting people. Something to do with the way the two guys kiss on screen? You can listen again to today's programme on our website and you can keep up with us on Facebook, The Strand, BBC World Service. But for now, from me, Harriet Gilbert and producer Craig Smith, thanks for listening and we leave you with these peaceful and I think rather wise and beautiful lines from Derek Walcott's White Egrets. In this orange hour, the light reads like Dante, three lines at a time, their symmetrical tension quiet bars rippling from the paradiso as a dinghy writes lines made by the scanty meter of its oar strokes and we so mesmerized can barely talk happier than any man now is the one who sits drinking wine with his lifelong companion under the winking stars and the steady arc lamp at the end of the pier bbc a refugee camp in the Democratic Republic of Congo. For 15 years, many of these people have been living in terrible conditions in the forest of the Congo. But now, they're going home. African journalist Soria Samura travels with one Hutu refugee on this painful journey. Road to Rwanda. Online from the 22nd of March at bbcworldservice.com. When you join our Global Minds Research Panel, you can help to shape what you see and hear from the BBC. It's free to join at bbcglobalminds.com. This is the BBC in Naples. Naples. Wherever you are, you're with the BBC. BBC World Service, this is James Menendez with NewsHour. Coming up in the next 60 minutes, why anti-government protesters in Thailand have been spilling their blood in the capital Bangkok. You say that we come for taxing, it's not that we come for ourselves, because Abhisit is trying to enslave us. 
Also are the leaders of the Afghan Taliban hiding out in Pakistan's biggest city, Karachi. Taliban are coming to Karachi and we know that they are coming to Karachi and they have their sympathizers in Karachi among Pakhtun communities. And why are the brains of human beings so big? We'll hear about a fascinating new theory of our evolution. First, though, let's get today's main news in detail. BBC News with David Austin. Anti-government protesters in the Thai capital Bangkok have splashed blood inside the main government compound in an act of symbolic sacrifice. They say the government came to power illegally and elections must be held. The government has refused to step down. Rachel Harvey was at the demonstration in Bangkok. All day, demonstrators lined up to donate blood, which was collected in plastic containers. As dusk fell, some of those containers were carried aloft to the gates of government house. Thousands of riot police were there to meet the demonstrators, but after negotiation, a small group of red-shirted leaders was allowed to move forward and pour the blood on the ground. At each entrance to the heavily protected compound, the same ritual was performed, the meaning clear to all ties. A blood curse has been placed on the government. Palestinian youths have clashed with Israeli security forces in East Jerusalem to protest at the reopening of a synagogue near one of Islam's holy sites. Demonstrations have also taken place in Gaza. Israel has mobilised 3,000 extra members of the security forces. The BBC's Paul Wood was at a protest in East Jerusalem. There's certainly been rioting in at least half a dozen different locations, dozens of Palestinians injured. So I'm standing at one of the locations now, it's been going on all morning. The riot police now seem to have pushed the young Palestinians who've been throwing stones at them all morning back into a very small section of the village that uh, this rioting is taking place near. It is not serious, it is not huge, but there is the potential for this to escalate, I think. The tension comes as the American Middle East envoy George Mitchell postponed a visit to Israel over its latest plans to build new settlements in East Jerusalem. The Hamas movement has called for a day of rage against Israeli settlement expansions. Two bomb explosions in Iraq have killed eight people and injured more than ten others. The bombs went off within minutes of each other in the town of Musayeb to the south of Baghdad. Police said the bombers had attached the devices underneath minibuses carrying passengers. The South Korean government is to offer special software to people who are addicted to the internet to limit the time they spend online. A man and woman were recently accused of letting their baby starve to death while playing a game simulating child-rearing. John Sudworth has this report from Seoul. The software will be made available to computer users to install on their own laptops and home PCs from next year. It will restrict the user's access to the internet after a certain time online. The South Korean government is also planning to encourage computer game manufacturers to make their products less addictive. One idea is to design games so that for long-term users they become so difficult that they're forced to give up. Up to two million South Koreans are estimated to be suffering from some form of internet addiction. World News from the BBC. The South African president, Jacob Zuma, is making his first official trip to Zimbabwe as mediator in the country's political crisis. Mr Zuma is trying to ease the deadlock between President Robert Mugabe and his Prime Minister, Morgan Shangarai, who signed a power-sharing agreement following disputed elections in 2008. 
The United Nations Environment Programme has criticised Russia for failing to take into account the environmental impact of building work for the next Winter Olympics. They'll be held in the Black Sea Resort of Sochi in 2014. Richard Galpin reports from Moscow. The United Nations Environment Programme says the authorities need to carry out a full assessment of the overall impact the Olympic building work is having on the region's ecosystem. It's a sensitive region, home to a national park and a huge nature reserve designated as a World Heritage Site. This is the first time Russia's hosting the Winter Olympics and it's a pet project of the Prime Minister Vladimir Putin. The authorities say the Olympics will be green and a top government minister in charge of the preparations has accused the environmentalists of trying to derail the Sochi Games. The European Court of Human Rights has ruled that Croatia discriminated against Roma pupils by segregating them in Roma-only primary school classes. The Croatian state had argued that the separate classes were intended to help Roma catch up with other pupils. Fifteen former pupils of Roma origin had alleged that the arrangement was racially discriminating and violated their right to education. The court ordered Croatia to pay each pupil more than $6,000 in damages. The conservation group has called for the trade in eight types of shark to be controlled in order to prevent their possible extinction. The group Oceana says that demand for the shark fin soup in China is now so great that sharks are being fished faster than they can reproduce. The group says millions of sharks are killed each year, mostly for soup. That's the latest BBC News. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm James Menendez with NewsHour. Anti-government protesters are again out on the streets of the Thai capital, Bangkok, today, and their demonstration's taken a rather grim turn. All day, they've been donating their blood to use as a symbolic gesture of sacrifice. They're calling on the government to hold fresh elections, but to no avail so far. A little earlier, I asked our correspondent, Rachel Harvey, for the latest from Bangkok. Well, from early morning this morning, James, people were lining up to donate their small portion of blood. In the heat of the day, they stood there very patiently, and there were nurses and medics on hand to draw a bit of blood and then squirt it into big plastic containers. Now, the idea was to then take that blood to the gates of government house and symbolically drizzle it at the gates. Now, that was, unless, of course, Prime Minister Abbasid... Wetachiwa agreed in advance to dissolve Parliament and call fresh elections. That, of course, as you say, has been the Red Shirts' demand from the beginning of this protest on Sunday. So, would the Red Shirts be allowed to carry out their plan? I went and followed the protesters to Government House to find out. The Red Shirts are now all converging on Government House. There's a, a wrought iron fence and a barrier that the police have set up. And behind the barrier, there are rows of police with their riot... ...shields and batons in place. And the two lines are now facing each other. The red shirts on one side of the barrier, the police on the other. And the crowds are still gathering here in large numbers. You say that we come for taxing. It's not that. We come for ourselves. We come for our living. Because, as you said, it's trying to enslave us. Do you think that uh, Mr. Abbasit is able to withstand this pressure that he can hold on? Of course. 
because he is the puppet. The person behind him can withstand it. The person behind him just look down on people. They never see the importance of the citizens. So the big cheer that just went up was in response to the blood being poured outside one of the gates of Government House. And just before the blood was spilled, there was a curse that was delivered. A blood curse against the government of Thailand. So the Red Shirt Anthems are playing again and the loud hailers have just been calling on the Red Shirts to keep the protests going, say this is our moment in history. And uh, Rachel's still on the line now. Uh, uh, Rachel, I'm just wondering uh, how much more, here we are three days on, how much more of these protests will the government tolerate? Well, it was interesting, the, the uh, little moment you heard there from the woman that I spoke to at the demonstrations. She's a Bangkokian, uh, a middle-class woman, very well-educated, and she was sort of indicating this conspiratorial theory that there was someone behind Apposit Wechachiwa. Now, the Red Shirts have said all along that one of their complaints is that this government, they say, is backed by the military, that it wasn't elected by popular mandate, it was imposed by Parliament, and that they say that part of their battle is against an entrenched elite who feel that they have the right to rule, whereas the Red Shirts say it should be up to the people to choose who they want to govern them. So, Mr. Apposit says he's there legitimately because Parliament put him there. As long as, th as I think things stay peaceful, as they have done over the past few days, his strategy is to try to wait things out. They're allowing the protests to happen. They're allowing the demonstrations to happen. They allowed that blood to be spilt in a very powerful symbolic gesture outside Government House. They're not clamping down. And I think their hope is that eventually the protests will run out of steam. But you might be able to hear behind me, James, the, the speeches are still going on on the stage. I'm now back at the main rallying site in the old city of Bangkok and the red shirt leaders are determined to try and keep this going as long as they possibly can. And that was our Southeast Asia correspondent Rachel Harvey speaking to me from those protests in Bangkok. Now in days gone by a rousing speech at the UN or a bit of canny negotiation behind closed doors were the main ways for diplomats to influence the thoughts and actions of others. But of course diplomats aren't the only ones trying to change our minds. Companies and governments all want to find the best way to sell their products or policies. And in the era of the internet, they're discovering new techniques of persuasion. Top of the list, online social networks like Facebook, Twitter or MySpace. But how important are these networks to what we think and do? Our reporter Chris Valance has been investigating. If you want to complain about a company, you could try ringing them up. The person you are calling has not answered. But as we all know, that can be pretty frustrating. So how about writing a song? It's what Canadian musician Dave Carroll did after his guitar was damaged by an airline. And when we were sitting at the back of the plane, a woman who didn't know we were musicians looked out the window and said, oh my God, they're throwing guitars outside. Dave's musical account of what happened to him has been watched online by tens of millions of people. It took four days to reach a million and three million the next week and four million a couple of weeks later. So right now it's sitting at 7.9 million hits. 
United Airlines apologised to Dave Carroll, but it's PR disasters like that that convince many companies they need to closely monitor social networks. And there are firms that do just that. I'm in the offices of Six Consulting in a converted warehouse in the East End of London, social media monitoring and engagement specialists. I'm Paul Taylor, I'm a co-founder of Six Consulting. I'm Matthew Brazil, the other co-founder of Six Consulting. So in essence, we are taking information from roughly 200 million blogs that exist, the several hundred video channels such as YouTube and Google videos, Micromedia, which is Twitter and FriendFeed, and so forth. With so many conversations going on, you want to try and pick out the people who are talking about a product who matter. And that's another part of this tool, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think picking out the people online that have a degree of influence is always going to be uh, an area of interest to every customer that we deal with. And governments are also interested in meeting opinion formers online. Welcome. I'm John Duncan, the UK's ambassador for arms control and disarmament. Welcome to my blog. John Duncan tries to change minds in the world of arms control via YouTube, blogs and Twitter. Uh, diplomats from the Middle Ages to the present day have always sought to find people who are the key opinion formers, the power behind the throne. So what we're doing is using 21st century technology to go out and find those key influences uh, and create a community so that what we eventually end up with is a third party endorsement of our view uh, which is being fed into the people we're trying to influence. But does all this interest in social networks mean that in the words of the song, you're no one if you're not on Twitter? But now you're no one if you're not on Twitter. And if you aren't there already, you've missed it. If you haven't been bookmarked, retweeted, blogged, you might as well not have existed. James Fowler is a political scientist from the University of California, San Diego, who studies social networks both in the real world and online, and he's convinced it's our offline connections that are more important. Well, we have started to study Facebook in the same way that we've been studying these real-world social networks, and one of the interesting things that we're finding is that all of these hundreds of connections that we have online to people that are possibly our friends, but also possibly people we don't know very well, um, they don't really affect us that much. Um, and so if we look to see, for example, whether or not um, someone posts a certain musical group that they like or a book they like or a movie they like on their profile picture, that doesn't tend to influence our own behavior on Facebook. Um, but if we restrict the set of observations to just those people that we appear to have a real-world relationship with, then we do find the same effects that we find in these real-world networks. So is John Duncan wasting his time with YouTube and Twitter? He doesn't think so. These communities, I mean the whole community of that thousand or so followers on, on Twitter, are all people who've got an interest, so they're engaged and they're feeding information back to me as I feed it out to them. So this constant dialogue is creating its community and creating then a constituency uh, within that community of people who want to make progress and, and change things. And starting a dialogue is after all what Dave Carroll was trying to do all along. Cause United brings guitars yeah, United breaks guitars. Yeah, United breaks guitars.
Chris Valance reporting there. Well, as part of our superpower season, we've been asking some of the most influential people in the digital world to spell out their visions of how the internet will continue to develop. Today, it's the turn of Philip Ameagwali, a supercomputer scientist from Nigeria, who explains how the internet will take hold in Africa in the future. Right now, the state of the art is the fiber optic lines that is connecting the eastern and southern regions of Africa to India and to Europe and make it possible for somebody in Lagos to surf at the same speed as somebody in London. When you look at internet users in 50 years, the most internet users will be in China and the second will be in India and the third will be in Nigeria. There will be more mobile phone numbers and internet email in Nigeria alone than in the United States. The internet is the repository of humanity's knowledge of the 21st century. And so Africa needs to connect to that repository and connecting to that humanity's knowledge is the key to not only increasing the continent's scientific and technological intellectual capital, but alleviating poverty and reducing the gap between the rich and the poor nations of the world. Africa will never be able to buy 400 million laptops for 400 million children at the price tag of $100 per laptop. But it can afford to buy one laptop per school and have that laptop in each school connected to the internet and that will be a greater value and that is a great investment that the continent and the people can afford. A decade ago, one in three nations in Africa were affected by civil war, either directly or indirectly, with refugees coming over to their countries. A lot of that came due to arguments over election rigging. And if we can reduce or eliminate election rigging with electronic voting, there will be a permanent digital records of people's vote. And that makes it possible in the future to replace selection with true election. That was Philip Ameagwali, and tomorrow we'll be hearing from Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, who'll be talking about his aspirations to create a geographically aware encyclopedia that'll be available in all languages and dialects. Don't forget you can catch all the highlights from our superpower season by going to our website, bbc.com forward slash superpower. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. Coming up later on NewsHour, the South African President Jacob Zuma is beginning a visit to neighbouring Zimbabwe aimed at shoring up the fragile political situation there. The fact he's going there and for three days, I think, does lend some significance to it, if only because Jacob Zuma is very anxious at this point to make sure that no trouble erupts north of his borders just before the Football World Cup in South Africa. More on that a little later, but first a reminder of our main news this hour. Protesters in Thailand have splashed their own blood on government buildings and issued a curse on the government. The American special envoy to the Middle East has put off a visit to Israel as Palestinians protest on the streets 